Hello everyone and welcome to the History of Byzantium, episode 267, Provincial Separatism with Nathan Websdale. One of the big questions surrounding the Fourth Crusade is the issue of provincial separatism. Roman provinces have rarely, if ever, tried to break away from Constantinople during the course of this podcast. But in the wake of Manuel's death and Andronicus's disastrous reign, provincial rebels began to behave differently than their predecessors. Instead of using their rebellions to launch a bid for the throne, they began to simply cut ties with the capital and create local statelets instead. What was going on here? Was this simply a post-Manuel development or a post-Manzikert scenario? What lay underneath it? Was it circumstantial, or did it hint at long-term problems? And do events after 1204 tell us more about what was really happening? These are the sorts of questions I'm hoping to tackle in the next couple of episodes. I thought I'd start by talking to someone who is studying these issues right now. Nathan Websdale is a PhD candidate at Oxford University and president of the Byzantine Society there. We sat down and had a chat about some of the theories which exist to explain the developments of this era. We talk about events you are familiar with, like the Bulgarian Uprising and the coup of John the Fat, but we also get into post-1204 events, so I will interrupt the conversation from time to time to tell you things you should be aware of. Now, here's the interview. Nathan Webstale, welcome to the History of Byzantium. Hello, Robin, and thank you so much for having me on. It's a wonderful pleasure to be here and a real honor to be brought on. Oh. Um, how are you doing? <laughs> I'm good. Thank you. You're very kind. Um, well, I am honored when uh, someone at the coalface studying Byzantium in depth comes on the podcast and shares their wisdom with us. And uh, I uh, I know you've just been to to uh, Istanbul itself. So you are you are quite literally, you know, <laughs> digging in the bones of Byzantium as we speak. Um, could you just tell the listeners a little bit about yourself and what your area of study is and, and how you come to be talking to me today? Absolutely. So I am a second year DPhil student in history, which is what Oxford archaically terms a PhD. Um, and that means that I am about halfway through um, where I will, I'm submitting a thesis on 12th, uh, late 12th and early, and early 13th century Byzantium, um, where I study the period surrounding 1204 and then its consequences in the witnesses of um, who sees who see the Fourth Crusade and who then have to deal with its fallout. Um, I'm also the president of the Oxford University Byzantine Society, um, which is the in its about 25th year um, of being the network of Oxford Byzantinists who um, will have a research trip every year to somewhere in the old empire and will also host an international uh, graduate conference. We gather people from all over the world to come and speak. Fantastic. Um, well, you're clearly the man to be talking to about 1204. And um, we've reached the discussion of provincial separatism, which hasn't really been an issue for um the Byzantine Empire up to this point in in large part. And um, now, of course, as most listeners know, uh, the empire is kind of split into pieces. And um, even before the Crusaders turned up, various provincial governors were kind of refusing to cooperate with Constantinople. So we really want to ask you what's going on here. And is there something deeper going on here than just a sort of administrative breakdown? Um, can you tell us about sort of um, academic theories and ideas about what was going on, um, you know, in the post-Manuel world? In the post-Manuel world, of course. Um, so in the study of Byzantium, as it sits today, there are two main schools of thought on how people in Byzantium self-identified. There are the people who believe that Byzantium is a nation state of the Romans, um, which is the theories propounded by Anthony Caldellis and other scholars in that part of America. And then you have the more Viennan 
uh, Viennese school, um, which looks more at overlapping fields of identity and the idea of Constantinople as more of an imperial city-state with lots of other tributaries that feed into it, their resources, um, without an overlapping, or sorry, an all-encompassing identity of being Roman. Uh, and as you approach 1204, you start to see what used to be sort of cultural lines that we thought were there. Sometimes you get a bit of prejudice, a bit of stereotyping in the sources. That starts to bleed through into political action. And in most senses, it's not new, but the weakness of Constantinople after the death of Manuel, and particularly after the death of Andronikos Komnenos, is it gives free reign to these people to start unleashing uh, a very much a war divided upon ethnic lines and mo more than more just ethnic, mostly linguistic, um, um, which then obviously feeds into how they sort of identify themselves and make groups and it seems to be very much linguistic groups. Um, but just for one example of itself, the Serbian breakaway from Byzantium, um, which starts uh, unleashing itself around 1183, 84, is entirely um, in uh, vengeance almost of Manuel's son, Alexius II, after he is removed from the scene and strangled or, or poisoned or beheaded in some way um, by Andronikos, because Manuel's whole system of the Comnenian household government, where he has a, very much a, a personal network that feeds into him and, and his son, has just been decapitated. There is now no longer a head to that body and now there are lots and lots of limbs. And so the sense of what's happening in Byzantium in this 20-year period, 24-year period, between Manuel's death and 1204, um, is that there are three main uh, problems going on. One is ethnic separatism. Two, the rise of a locally powerful aristocracy. And three, the imperial ambitions of those members of the Kamnini family who are now effectively unleashed. So when we talk about, um, so we break down those three things. So ethnic separatism, the listeners would think of the Bulgarian uprising and the Serbs kind of breaking away. But are there other ethnic elements to talk about? Um, so, well, the Bulgarian element is definitely the biggest one. I mean, that's what brings down Isaac II is his inability to handle the Bulgarian uprising. But even that is a bit of a misnomer because the name for what um, Ioannitsa, Kalyan, or so just for an example, um, it's not just a Bulgarian empire. It's a black empire. It has a very large population of Greeks and it's got Cumans as its generals and in its army which means you've already got four very distinct ethnic groups who are part of that, but then they're distinct in how we look at them, but are they actually not distinct at all? Because um, this man who will become very important as the head of the Bulgarian empire is this man called John, um, who also has the names of the good John Kaloyan, uh, and then John the dog and John the Vlack. And all those different peoples overlapping uh, means that he ends up becoming not so much an ethnic separatist as an alternative. And he gathers and he has a, he has a sort of an appeal, which is broad and which is very much in opposition to uh, Constantinople and the ethnic separatism. He sort of draws in these different elements into a different, into another multicultural state. Um, and then over on in the Serbian lands, who the Byzantines are calling the Trivali, but it just means it's just their old word for, for a Serb, um, is uh, the slow growth towards a new kingdom. Um, and they will become a kingdom themselves around, what was it, 12, the first or first, second dec decade of the 13th century. I think it's about 12 to 15. Um, and far away on the other side of the Aegean, you have the Cilician Armenians, who have been a tributary state to the Romans for almost the entire Kamnini period. Um, and around, and it's 1197, they suddenly 
get a crown and they get a crown both from the Pope and from Constantinople to raise them into a kingdom. Uh, the Pope one comes first and Constantinople has to play catch up. Uh, and these peoples which have not had kings for centuries suddenly are all now becoming organized ethnic states with their own organization with their own institutions their own churches and their own monarchs uh the two twin pillars of state which the byzantines themselves are about to lose so here we start to peel back some of the layers of the traditional narrative I talked at the time about how the Bulgarian Rebellion was not really a strictly ethnic separatist movement. As with the original Bulgarian Empire, it was to some extent an alternative to Roman rule. A strongman who says, we don't have to obey Roman laws and pay imperial taxes anymore, we can form our own state and do things differently. As Nathan put it there, the Tsar is presenting himself as an alternate emperor for the people of the region. After 1204, this will be the story of the remaining Byzantine lands. Multiple states will form, all offering, to some extent, to take over the authority of the Roman Empire. In this next section, we discuss the provincial rebellions which Alexius Angelos Komnenos was tackling in the run-up to 1204. I rather breezed over these during the narrative, so you may have forgotten the name Leoscuros, he was a strong man in Greece who was in revolt when the Latins arrived. You may just remember the name Theodore Mangafas, who seized power over in Anatolia with his capital at Philadelphia. These were just some of those who were turning their back on Constantinople in the run-up to the Fourth Crusade. Absolutely. And then the second problem you brought up was the development of a new aristocracy? Yes, the development of a locally powerful aristocracy. Um, so this is within the Greek-speaking um, peoples of the empire. Uh, and it's the people who seem to be able to withstand centralized control. So the one that springs to mind um, immediately is a guy called Leon Skouros, who, uh, as Coniati says, comes from no distinguished people whatsoever. Uh, but... He manages to take control of Naphtalion, of Corinth, and to besiege Athens. Uh, and that sort of anchors him in a very localized power base, which can withstand. Um, but it's more, they're also popping up in Rhodes and in uh, Philadelphia and in different places across the Aegean. And they are able to sort of realize that Organizing defense, and defense is crucial in this period because there's so much going wrong. Organizing defense is easier if you are autonomous and paying no uh, taxation or whatsoever to Constantinople as if you just do it yourself. So the document which lists all these provinces that have broken away from the empire on either ethnic or uh, just Greek grounds of we can do it better is called the Partitio Romaniae. Um, which is a document drawn up by the Crusaders, and it means the division of the Roman Empire. Um, it's drawn up by the Crusaders in 1203 um, slash 1204, depending on who you agree with. Um, and it is a big list of the provinces about who they shall be given to. Will they be given to the Venetians? Will they be given to uh, the King of Thessaloniki? Will they be given to the Empire? or the, um, the free men, as they call themselves. Um, and it has huge gaps in what should be the Byzantine Empire, because it's based upon the last taxation records of Alexius III Angelos in, 12, in uh, summer 1203. And those taxation records have are missing half the empire, because those people have just stopped paying attention to who is... Uh, who should be in charge anymore because they can do it better. So um, this was put together by a man called Nicholas Economides um, about uh, 35 years ago, as he called it the Black Mirror of Byzantium, where if you look through this document and see what's not there, it tells you precisely where all these little rebellions are. And he did a nice, na nice map for it as well, which I'm happy to send to you if you'd like it. Um, so we know there are serious problems. The issues of these places, they don't leave a lot of sources. Uh, 
Um, they start minting, some places start minting their own coinage, but you do not have a huge amount of textual evidence for these places. They don't have chancelleries. They don't have, uh, there's no one sitting down to write, write a Byzantine history of Philadelphia yet. <laughs> yeah, absolutely. I'm jumping in again just to say that the map which Nathan is talking about is on the website and social media. It shows shaded areas which were in revolt at the time of the Latin occupation, which includes substantial parts of Thrace, Anatolia and Greece. I should also remind you a little about the coup of John the Fat, which took place in the year 1200. John was a descendant of John Komnenos the Emperor and his right-hand man John Aksuk, so he had a great imperial pedigree and his supporters seized the Hagia Sophia and the palace while Alexius Angelos Komnenos was away on campaign. But the emperor's wife sent troops in to slaughter the rebels, which they did. We're about to get into how accounts of that revolt may reveal an inter-Roman ethnic tension between people of the capital and those from the provinces. So the third element you mentioned, we I guess we covered pretty well in the podcast, which is all the various Komnenian family members trying to seize the throne for themselves. So you've got different parts of the empire breaking away with a kind of ethnic element to them, sort of creating an alternate state um, to Constantinople. You've got um, kind of uh, the Komnenian, the Komnenian family falling over themselves to try and grab the throne. And then you've got local aristocrats deciding they're better off without the capital at this point in terms of local defense. So the thing, things are falling apart. Are there any ideas like, is this purely um, the breakdown of the state? Is this purely a pragmatic response to the failure of Constantinople to provide defense or it, do we detect any kind of ideological or, or ethnic or any other ideas going on under the surface about why people are turning their back on Constantinople? Well, that comes into a very um, interestingly named argument called the concept of the Byzantine snob or Byzantine snobbery, as it was termed by Paul Magdaleno uh, back in 1984, uh, which has not had as much traction as it probably should, because it is the concept of Constantinople slowly drawing up the bridge to the provinces all around it and becoming very, very insular and very, very exclusive as a Byzantine state and as an identity, an ideology. So the theory goes that over the course of the long 12th century, and particularly from about the 1150 onwards, you start to get a people who believe that they are more Roman than everyone else and that they are the one true Roman people and everyone else around them has got a lesser identity, a lesser ethnic uh, terminology than that. And it sort of comes from class, it comes from education, but it also comes from that very exclusive uh, nature of the convenient system of withholding provinci- uh, uh, imperial power into these, only those born to it only those born to be part of the Canadian system. And there are people outside who can still make their careers in that period. I mean, you do have the Coniartis brothers who come from Conai, which is in southern, southern, southern western Anatolia. Um, but they are the exception to the rule in this period. So just for example, you come across uh, a very famous philosopher called John Zetzes. And we've never quite worked out if this is a very much a boast or a uh, or a sort of xenophobic, angry point. But he walks around the streets of Constantinople and he, and he narrates himself doing this. And he greets about 10 or so different uh, people in their own languages. And he says um, and he writes it down in phonetically in Greek. So you can see precisely how he's uh, saying hello to these people. And he, he does the Greek, he does the Latin, does the Bulgarian, Armenian, does the uh, Arab, does the uh, Hebrew. The guy has a lot of languages going on. Um, and we've never quite known if that should be taken as a sort of, I'm so wonderful, or I'm actually quite annoyed that all these people are here. Because next to Byzantine snobbery, you start dealing with, Byzant- with Constantinopolitan xenophobia, 
which the example that I use for my thesis and where this starts coming through most strongly is if you remember, if your listeners remember a few episodes ago when we got to the coup of John the Fat, Axukos Komnenos, um, which is on uh, the 29th of May, 1200, um, slash 1201, depending on which uh, narrator we use. We only have the day, not the year. Um, it is a coup that is, is recorded in four different sources inside Constantinople. But one of them is very different to all the others. And it's the one that is the eyewitness and the one who has the most to say and the most to change. And it's written by a man called Nicholas Meserites, who is, the Byzantines call it a skevophylax, it means sacristan, um, of the Holy Chapel of the Pharos, which is where Christ, the relics of Christ's passion are stored. And it is the holiest place in Constantinople, effectively, because it has the crown of thorns, the holy lance, and um, very and the stone of unction, the stone that Christ was laid upon, which my mother Koninos brought to Constantinople. Um, and Nicholas Meserites belongs to a clan inside Constantinople, which had come to power, had come to prominence effectively with Andronicus Komnenos, who Andronicus, who is most famous for his massacre of the Latins and for his uh, general tyranny across Constantinople and some of the empire. But the Meserites family were, were involved in how he came into the city itself. So Mes Nicholas Meserites' father, Constantine, was the president of the Senate. And it seems that when the city capitulated to Andronikos and opened the gates, he was the one who went out there to do that. And when Andronikos came in, the Meserites families become very, very attached to them. Nicholas's brother becomes Andronikos's personal confessor. And then two years, three years later, when the city uh, rises up against Andronikos, two of the members of the Meserites family are thrown to their death from a great height. So they die alongside Andronikos. Now, Nicholas is obviously a younger son and comes along about 10 or 15 years later and starts rising through the ranks of the uh, church. But he seems to have internalized some of the xenophobia, which made his family quite popular with Andronikos. And so he sort of rewrites the uh, coup attempt of John the Fat, um, where... Normally, what, how, we, how John the Fat's cue is viewed is that it is an aristocratic push by a very small number of people to try and put their claimant on the throne who's a member of the Kamnini family. It's happened before, it's going to happen again. <laughs> um, but Meserites does something different. He rewrites the coup to make it a Byzantine's first uh, putsch to try and remove every foreigner from the city, much like another massacre of the Latins, if you will, but to include far more groups inside that. So, I mean, just to go through who he names, he names the Scythians, so the um, anyone from the Black Sea regions, the Cumans or not, the Bulgarians, the Taurus Scythians, the Pers-Armenians, who are the Cilician Armenians, the Illyrians, um, who are people from Albania and Serbia, the Trivali, another Serbian people, the Pions, the Hungarians, the Alamans, who are the Germans, the Italians, the Iberians, and the Libyans. And he wants all these people out the city. <laughs> and this doesn't seem to have come from anywhere. This seems to have come entirely from Nicholas Meserites himself, because he's now got a chance to deliver a speech in front of the emperor about how well he survived the coup attempt. And he's making a message with this. He's making a message where he's going up and saying, we're in trouble. Look how the empire's going at this point. Look at all the coup attempts around us and all the separatist movements. We need to do something about this fast. And that's the ethnic element of the uh, heteroglot, the other speakers, the other language speakers. And that's where that goes in terms of the separatist discussion. But Meserites goes one step further, where he starts bringing in uh, the homoglots, so people speaking the Hellenophones, the other people speaking the Greek language, and his he starts becoming sort of what I, what I my thesis see is 
the archetype for Byzantine snobbery in 1200, because he starts lumping together as enemies of the chosen people, everyone who is not native to Constantinople. People who come from the provinces, people who are betraying the concept and the loyalty to the empire, and more importantly to him, the church, because he's a churchman. Everyone who is betraying that is now becoming not Althienis and not Autochthon, not indigenous, not native. And these two terms massively peak in, uh, in terms of their frequency um, in Meserites' language. Um, and it starts to, you start to think of, okay, so we're now turning Constantinople against its own provinces and against people who come from there. You understand that empires need people. Right. Uh, if an empire does not have its tributaries and all of its soldiers and they can't all come from one place, you're going to be left in a situation where your cities who are supposed to be your your subjects and part of your empire and part of the, the fabric of your community aren't going to let, raise a finger to help you. And because they don't see any sort of sense of what they get from you anymore. And that's the Byzantine sort of snobbery argument is it's we get this very much a peak of literature, which comes in about, about the sort of seven or eight voices that we have in the generation of the Fourth Crusade on the Byzantine side. We get this big peak of just before 1204, an exclusivity to Constantinople that is not there before, that is very much based in aristocracy and based in spatial identity and where you're born. And where you're born is now going to be a very, very big problem because what do you do if your entire concept of identity revolves around Constantinople and Constantinople is about to be yunked out from under your feet? <laughs> mm. Let, let's unpick, unpack that for a second. So Meserites' account of the coup of John the Fat is going to be read in front of the emperor? Yes. And so he's putting into the mouth of the partisans of of John the Fat that once he's in power will get rid of all the foreign peoples. Yes, which is seems to be unique to Meserites. Um, everyone else, I mean, bear in mind that um, John the Fat himself is half Turkish, mm. um, or at least descent, not half Turkish. He's, he's descended from the Axoukos family. Yeah, um, and so his grandfather was John Axouk, who was a Turk. Um, and was then raised with the Comnini family as John Comnenos, the emperor's uh, childhood friend, and then became his grand domestic, and then held that office and, well, under Manuel the First until he loses it under um, sort of suspicion of treachery in about the 1160s. And you are put in a situation where how do you have a xenophobic coup aimed at trying to put a man who every other source attacks for being Turkish? Yeah. <laughs> And so do you sense that Meserites is picking up on a current of opinion that exists or is simply using this as a rhetorical device to campaign, as it were, to the emperor for the reduction in dependence on foreign peoples? He definitely believes that they need to become more self-sufficient because it's only, sorry, um, it's only by them having a native army that they are going that they're going to be able to withstand the foreigners again um and he definitely wants to see less foreigners surrounding the imperial officers i think that's a huge part of it um oddly enough he likes the ranking guard they are acceptable foreigners yeah. um because i guess they they're more they're very loyal to a point anyway um and he is representing an element which i think is found in other literature as well um and has been there for a long time we know there are stereotypes across byzantine literature for a long for many many years but when it's starting to become public discourse and a chance to say this in front of the court it is very much as in the case of i imagine it as being like look around you look around you who do who's who is next who is going to betray the state next um and there are then, the, bear in mind, you, you have um, Nikitas Koniartis, um is in the court as well at this point. 
Um, and he loses he stays there until he loses office under Alexius V, um, Dukas Matsophilos, um, who finally removes him. But Nikitas Koniatis has staked his career on we need to master the foreigners, we need to employ them in Byzantine service, and only by doing that will we be able to uh be dominant over all the peoples as the Roman Empire should be. Honiates obviously is proven wrong by 1204, and then he has to quickly rewrite his history um, to say, oh, of course, we were never supposed to, we were, we were all supposed to be true, and we were all supposed to um, never give the foreigners an inch. Um, but until that happens, he's on the side of, we can play them, we can use them, give them jobs, give them money, and we can be, we can make them our servants. Uh, and I think there's, there's definitely a dialogue, there's a conflict happening at the court between the two parties. We also know for a fact that two that Messerites and Coniates hated each other. And so there are there are kind of two levels to this, because you could see Messerites as, as just being like a, a modern politician blaming the immigrants for the problems. But this is a much sort of um more damaging idea that this century of Comnenian aristocracy has led to a train of thought that those who are Greek-speaking and Orthodox are not necessarily as Roman as we are. Mm. Um, so, can you talk a little bit more about that? Like, do we? Where else do we see that in the sources? That idea developing? Yeah, uh, it's like it's, it's found in its first stages in um, Anna Comnini, when you seem to find that she might even be using the terms Grecos and Helen as um, being slightly distinguishing markers. So um, in some scholarship today, you will find that people believe that diglossia, which is the act of having two languages living simultaneously alongside, um, is a sign of Grecos and Hellen, Greek and Hellenic, being ethnic markers, which uh, distinguish if someone is a true Roman or this sort of second strata of Roman society. Um, and it is, it's, it's a very ill-defined idea, if I'm honest, because people can obviously move between them and identity is always something that is performative. It is always a sense of I'm this now, but in this context, I could be this because then I'll identify with this thing and then I belong to that. So it's, um, very sort of difficult to precisely pin down where, it, where it turns up, but it, it will then sort of, it will be there um, on terms of the, who can you retract Roman identity from for the next sort of couple couple um, decades. So the first instance I think of Byzantine snobbery is what happens when it comes, because Andronicus Komnenos comes from the Black Sea to sack Constantinople. And he does that using Komnenian heartlands, which have been, which surround the old Komnenian castle, um, Castamonu. And that's in Paphlagonia. And the Paphlagonians become the Byzantine uh, boogeyman <laughs> for a little bit, where they accompany Andronikos into Constantinople and then sack the city. Uh, not to the extent of 1204, anywhere near it, but they do a little bit of looting, they, do, they take some church silver. Um, and you then get this account by a man called Eustathios of Thessaloniki, who is the Metropolitan Bishop of Thessaloniki, um, who witnessed the sack of, sack of the city to the Normans in 1185. And he invents the Paphlagonians as being a wicked race. I, I quote, he used, it's a wicked race who have always been hostile to the ancient Greeks and us, which removes a thousand years of Roman history from the Paphlagonians, where they fought in the empire. They produced emperors. In, in the uh, 11th century, we have an entire Paphlagonian dynasty for a while. But the Paphlagonians become uh, this people who are no longer recognized as homogenous. They are no longer part of us. And that's the earliest example where you can see a specific area of the empire. Uh, you get other peoples. I mean, there's always um, stereotypes against the Armenians, against the Bulgarians. Um, and you only get it in a few of these various sources, but when you start picking up on it, you then realize that those groups become much more problematic after 1204 when they're trying to reincorporate and, and reestablish an empire again. So how, how serious do you 
do you think this is this kind of change in in Roman identity? I mean, if if Constantinople hadn't fallen, do you think these problems would still have would they have been inherent in those provinces that separated the sense of well, you don't want us, so why should we be a part of you? Or do you think people would have kind of gotten over it and gone back to a sense that we're all Romans, we're all in this together? Hmm. Um, it would have taken a lot. But as long as Constantinople had not fallen, you don't want to write off anything. Hmm. Because that level of resource, that level of wealth, which is inside the city, it means that you always have has a possibility of re-establishing control because you can always outgun them. But how long does it really take to integrate or reintegrate a province? It took Bulgaria. There are three rebellions of Bulgaria after Basil II conquers it, and there are no more after 1080. Well, after that's done, you go 100 years, 105 years until there is a Bulgarian uprising, and even that's relaunched really along taxation grounds rather than actual um, ethnicity at first. It snowballs because of it, but it's taxation inspired. Um, so you can, I think, reintegrate, but you would need you need to sort of have someone on the ground that you trust in the province. You would need to have someone who could reestablish law. And one of the strangest things at all when you're dealing with Andronicus Comnenos is the emperor is almost universally reviled, but people in the provinces actually quite like him. And they say that he actually came along and reestablished the office of Praetor, who would come, who the old, the original Roman office, who would go out to the provinces and ensure that uh, law was being followed, who would try and ease taxation. And there are there are letters by Michael Coniates, the Archbishop of Athens, which praises Andronicos. They're almost the only ones that do. Um, that he was starting to make some amends to bring the bring the provinces and the provincials back into the empire, imperial system. That obviously goes out the window uh, with the Comnenian system in 1185 with Andronikos. And it's, we have 20, we have 19 years until this empire falls uh, to, the, to, the, to the Latins. But is it possible to say that they could have re-established control? They probably could have done. Mm. It would have taken a lot, You just but you just need resource, you need manpower, time and wealth. And as long as they had those things, they could have done it. Okay, well, they didn't. Um, <laughs> I'm interrupting again as we're about to get into events post-1204. As many of you know, the two major Byzantine states vying to regain control of the empire are based in east and west. In the east, there is Nicaea, where much of the aristocracy fled after the sack. And in the west, a surprisingly effective state grew up in western Greece. Epirus is the area between the Pindus Mountains and the Ionian Sea, and it would produce a new self-consciously Roman state, but one with a distinct identity, as we discuss. It's really interesting that this region would form a breakaway Roman state, because it's not far from the HQ of the Bulgarian state, which gave Basil II so much trouble, again hinting at the complex ethnicities and mixed communities of the medieval Balkans. One more reminder... Theodore Lascaris is the man who will lead Nicaea post-1204. His claim to authority is that he'd married the daughter of Alexius Angelos Komnenos. I cut out a bit of our chat here, which is why Nathan comes back in in the middle of his flow. The other ones which are more easily labelled as East and West are the court at Nicaea, which becomes the East, and that is known as the East as early as 1205, when... Uh, you get various letters written to uh, Theodore Lascaris, where he is named as Emperor of the East. And the word Roman is not in there, which is uh, interesting in itself. Romania as a geopolitical concept is that you shall go and liberate Romania, but he is just Emperor of the East for now. And for about 10 years or so, there is not a particularly well-defined challenger in the West, in the Balkans. But from 1205 through to about 1215, you have the rulership of a man called Michael Comnenos uh, Ducas, also known as Michael Angelos, depending on who you read. Uh, and he leaves 
So originally he capitulates and collaborates with the Latins. Uh, and then he, as they're marching down south, he thinks maybe I can make something of a go of this. And he abandons uh, the, the king of Thessaloniki's army and goes to Arta, which is a quite charming city in, in modern Epirus, if you ever go. Um, and he somehow managed to to manipulate a situation. Either he is he finds a, a commander dead, or he finds a widow. No one's quite sure, but he manages to marry a woman and come in, come into control of Arta. And from there, he establishes a very much undefined despotate. It's known as despot, meaning lord. Despotate just meaning lordship. And that doesn't have a very clear identity until his successor, his his half-brother, takes over Theodore. And under Theodore Komnenos Dukas, who rules from 1215 until 1230, you get an actually established Western Hellenic Balkan identity, which refer to the refer to their own lands as people of the West, here in the West, and the Western Church. And in communication with the Eastern Church, uh, which is based at Nicaea and where the Patriarchate will be re-established in 1208. So how they define themselves in the West is very much in a sense of, you forgot about us a little bit. They complain that after 1204 um, and until about um, 1218, there is a great silence between the two churches between the church which is being reconfigured in the east and what and all these vacant bishoprics and vacant vacant churches which are now in the west where Latins have come in maybe the bishop had to leave for, for um, had to flee and then there was no one there anymore and they need someone to be reappointed and there's all these what they call widowed bishopric widowed churches around which have to be reconfigured um, and so the western church comes up with its own ideas of leadership and they do that by without any sort of legal right particularly they crown their own emperor and they say that he'll be the emperor of the west uh but not the emperor of the west as it used to be <laughs> the emperor of a very small part of the west in the Vulcans. um and he will be emperor of, of the romans in some literature in some titles but his domain is always going to be of that west Whereas that is completely unacceptable to uh, Theodore Lascaris, who is the Roman, uh, the Byzantine fight back and the leader of the Byzantine um, resistance in Nicaea, who becomes emperor in 1205 and gets crowned in 1208. Um, and he wants to, he want, will never accept a peer. There cannot be two emperors, there cannot. Uh, and there's a whole series of these letters that go back and forth between Nicaea and Anata. Um, which detail this, talking about can there be two people, can there be two emperors, can there be two patriarchs for one people? And that's the sort of discussion you start having of they recognise each other and they're speaking the same language, but are they still one people at that point? Because to um, the Archbishop of Ocrid, a man called Dimitros Chamatinos, they are not. He recognizes him in spirit in um spiritual brother, spiritual fraternity, and spiritual brother brotherliness, but he will not recognize him as having any right to interfere in his organization of his own church and how they organ and how they run their state. Uh, and that spatial identity will last for a long, long time. It's will mean that Epirus is never particularly reconfigured back into the Byzantine state. It will be conquered from time to time. But until 1453, that Western identity is going to last to the extent that they will accept Italian lords rather than Greeks. <laughs> um, because the Italians actually intermarry with them at some point and make it more legitimate. But it's, uh, it's, it's a spatial identity which they try very hard to suppress the beginning and then they struggle with it because it seems more organic at that point. And it's when the Byzantine the Roman state is getting weaker and weaker and resources are getting more and more stretched, it makes more sense to have a localized defense. And, and do you get the sense that 
that is in in Epirus, that's a direct response to the sack and being left out of what follows or was that already that alienation already developing pre 1204 hmm. um so Epirus is another multi-ethnic state they all are i'm afraid there's there's no clear uh... oh, sorry to interrupt yeah no i just wanted to remind listeners that what we're talking about is essentially the heart of the bulgarian empire that fought basil ii so even though it's now been back in the roman empire you know lake ocrid mm-hmm. and so on was all was bulgarian heartlands not that they were necessarily bulgarian people but it's interesting that that then becomes a roman breakaway state uh, another mm-hmm. hundred years on anyway sorry no no i mean it's the um it, definitely the legacy of bulgaria is incredibly strong in the area in that region um, you get in this period where Epirus, which is not just what is now considered like the modern um, region of Epirus and modern Greece, but is stretching at its height as far as Ocrid. It incorporates Thessaloniki. It stretches down towards the uh, Corinthian Gulf, and it has the major cities of Dyrrhachion, modern Dures in Albania, um, and Corfu, another hugely important trading center. And there's, there's three very nice castles that still stand on Corfu of the first time there. Um, and they need to sort of establish what precisely they're trying to do. And that man I mentioned previously, Dimitris Hormatinos, the Archbishop of Ocrid, who imagines himself, he goes back as far as the 6th century and finds some old uh legislation which ranks Justinia Prima um, as the second most important uh, bishopric in the empire. And by using that, he says that I am now more important than the than I see in Bithynia. And so I can I can now be a patriarch. A quasi-patriarch is how we refer to him in, in modern scholarship. But he's a very interesting man because Almost uniquely in Byzantine um, sources, his entire register of works survive. So you have entire bishops' um, court decisions, very much on a small local scale, um, where he is sort of managing this population of Greeks, yes, but also Bulgarians, Vlachs, uh, and some Latins who are, who are sort of there. And he tells people not to, not to marry the Latins. Uh, because you'll be losing your... Uh, I think if, if someone marries a Latin, they shall be cut off from the community. <laughs> um, and so he goes around and he starts rewriting the hagiography of the region where he wants to use the Christianization of Bulgaria as a sign that they have been raised into another select chosen people of God, almost equal to the Romans or the Greeks, um, he mostly uses Greeks as his terminology, um, which means that they are all sharing the same spatial sites and that they're sharing the same monasteries, they're sharing uh, churches, and they can share the space. Um, which, given how much land Theodore Komnenos Dukas ca- captures off the Bulgarian Tsar, you kind of have to. Um, you've, you've got populations that you can't ignore. We, if, you, if they were to rely entirely upon the Greeks, they would not be able to field an entire army, you know? Mm. So it's very much just the word they use for it is economia, which means pragmatism. Um, it's obviously it's the word, English word economy, but it's how do you manage? How do you get by preserving what you need to preserve your culture so that you still recognize yourself, but also recognizing the situation you're in? Mm. That's really interesting that the kind of a different Roman identity emerges in order to incorporate the peoples who are now on your doorstep. You can't ignore them when you're part of a, a wider Roman world. You can kind of say, well, you don't really fit fit in and we can ignore you. Um, um, we're probably going to have to start to to wrap things up now, um, though we could talk about this for a long time. But um, it, really, it really sounds like the sack of, of Constantinople kind of just throws open roman identity and 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 these these currents that were running beforehand have a quite a quite a difficult effect for people to synthesize and um yeah it 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 sounds like there's a real struggle for defining uh what 
community is in the Roman world now and, and what it means to be Roman? I mean, is that sort of where your work is is taking you? It's definitely headed along that way. It's definitely looking precisely into the changes about how exactly do you define a community? Who do you accept within it and who do you not accept? Because the criteria for who you do incorporate within um, your state, polity, your community, depending how big it is really, seems to be very, very subjective and it's constantly shifting. And the identities of those who are inside which fit that criteria is constantly overlapping, constantly moving. And the example of Kalyan, the czar of the Vlach, Bulgarian, Cuman, and somewhat Greek empire is the perfect example. To be Kalyan, to be John the Vlach, to be John the Dog, to be Ioannitsa, means that you are always in flux and the spatial identity which comes into 12 into the Byzantine world after 1204 because it has to because you have to recognize that your situation has changed and that you're now in these different provincial centers leaves open a lot of room for dynamic innovation which i do not think you have so much in other periods that makes the period from 1204 to 1261 and particularly those early two or three decades, 1204 to 1230, that's where my thesis ends in 1230. It makes that period so exciting because you never quite know what you're going to read next. Absolutely. It's just a fascinating period. And we're so grateful to you for coming on and sharing your insights. Um, when, when do you think you'll be finished? I think, given I've been doing this uh, presidency, which is basically like having an admin job or trying to do a doctorate at the same time, <laughs> I would think I've added six months. So I'm coming to the end of my second year, so maybe a year and a half. We wish you all the best and, and look forward to reading more of your work in the future. Thank you so much.